Welcome to the 39th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published last month and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, as we've said for the past couple of episodes, the current news is very encouraging. We're seeing daily infections decline rapidly and deaths diminish as well, albeit somewhat slower. Both the seven-day and 14-day averages have now fallen under 30,000 new cases a day for the first time in almost a year. And there are now a growing number of states which over 70% of people have received at least one vaccine shot, although most of these states are in the Northeast and none in the South. Across the US, more than 129 million Americans, or half of the country's adults, are now fully vaccinated, according to the CDC. At the same time, we are rapidly approaching 600,000 total deaths, a number we did not anticipate reaching at the start of the pandemic. And the rate of vaccine administration is slowing as more and more of those individuals who remain unvaccinated seem unwilling to receive their first dose. Offsetting some of this hesitancy is continued good news when it comes to vaccinating teenagers between 12 and 15 years of age. We talked in the last show about the Pfizer vaccine demonstrating 100% protection in this age group. And now we have data from Moderna with the exact same results in adolescents between 12 and 17. It is expected that emergency use authorization will be granted soon. I'm optimistic that we're going to see a continued reduction in cases, assuming the rate of vaccination does not dissipate and slow. Robbie, our listeners are very sophisticated and several are interested in the most up-to-date information on the effectiveness of the current vaccines against the new global variants, including the strain we're seeing in India that we've discussed in detail in our last episode. Jeremy, overall, the results are very positive when it comes to vaccines protecting against the various new strains. Although there was reduced protection and the efficacy of the B1617 strain now in India was compared to the B117 strain first reported from the UK. The level of protection against each has proven very good. The Pfizer vaccine was 88% effective against the variant that began in India 
and 93% effective against the one that began in the United Kingdom. Of importance, a single dose was far less protective against either of these strains with success in avoiding symptomatic disease, only 50% against the UK variant and 33% against the Indian one. It is why getting the recommended second dose is so important. It's interesting that the WHO today announced that it would stop referencing these strains based upon where the mutant appeared to begin. And they're gonna start labeling the one from, as an example of the United Kingdom as alpha, the one from India, the fourth strain developed delta and so forth until it goes through the entire alphabet to stop any blame being put on the people of the nations in which these particular mutations simply happen to occur. So this is probably the last time that we'll reference them by the country of origin as being part of the descriptor. Robbie, I keep hearing ongoing debate about the origin of this particular coronavirus in China. What's new? Jeremy, two news stories have reignited debate as to whether the virus was transmitted from bats to humans through an animal at the wet market in Wuhan, or whether it might have come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology as a result of a laboratory error. The first piece of news was information that three researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology became sick enough in November of 2019 to require hospital care with, quote, symptoms consistent with both COVID-19 and common seasonal illnesses. If COVID-19 was the cause of their illness, it can be presumed that the researchers at this laboratory were at least working with the virus at the time it began to first circulate in Wuhan, with the first case being confirmed December 8, 2019. The second news story is about six miners who had been working in a town in the mountains of Southwest China, who became sick in 2012 and died after coming into contact with bat excrement. Supposedly, scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology had been called at the time to come investigate the etiology of the illnesses and identified at that time several new coronaviruses of which COVID-19 could have been one of them. Putting these pieces together it would explain how the virus might have been brought into the Wuhan laboratory, which was a vital piece of missing information up to this point. The controversy can be very confusing for listeners since this new threat of a leak from the virology laboratory sounds similar to a previous conspiracy theory but actually it's quite different. So let me try to unpack the issues. The conclusion of the WHO investigators who looked at the origin of COVID-19 was that the virus began in a bat and either was transmitted directly to an animal that was sold in the wet market and consumed by people, 
or possibly through another animal, a so-called intermediate species to an animal that people ate. The conspiracy theory from a year ago, the alternative conspiracy theory from a year ago, the one that was rejected, was that COVID-19 was manufactured by scientists in the laboratory for some type of germ warfare and escaped by laboratory error. On this show, we talked back then that the reason that the idea was dismissed due to how difficult it would have been to make the genetic alterations needed to create such an organism. What this new line of thinking has done is to provide an alternative narrative to the wet market version, but it's different than the germ warfare one. And in looking through an objective lens, the scenario generated by the story of the miners could be just as possible as the wet market theory. In both versions, the mutation happens in a bat. So the two stories are identical to that point, and they both explain how a very complex biological change could happen. In the new one, rather than a bat passing the virus to a different animal and to humans, the bat feces would be responsible. It would contain and release the virus, and the miners working in the cave would inhale it. They would then become ill and die, leading researchers to come and take samples. The researchers having taken the virus to the laboratory for scientific purposes, and possibly as a means to find a way to prevent or cure the infection, it would be a legitimate piece of research. And this is what facilities like the one in Wuhan are designed to do for the benefit of the public. And a laboratory error, maybe a broken Petri dish or machine failure would have then allowed the virus to get loose, infect the people in the laboratory and spread throughout the city. This theory is far from absurd. Laboratory errors happen frequently in research sites around the world, including in the United States. This is not a conspiracy theory, but an unrecognized and unreported human error. And the United States has a history of trying to suppress such information when an American laboratory is responsible. The news stories undermine the credibility of the WHO investigation, and they put the Chinese government under the spotlight for how it limited the data that was made available to the teams from the WHO that came to investigate. But there's still no credible evidence that the Chinese government was responsible for the creation of the virus with or without nefarious purposes in mind. At the same time, if this virus is released from the lab, it raises the question as to whether there should be some type of global mandatory reporting to an international repository for information on laboratory accidents. And the possibility also highlights the risks involved in any scientific study of a communicable disease, whether it's anthrax, polio, or COVID-19. Whether the US would want to make that commitment, I don't know. No nation likes to acknowledge 
its mistakes. Robbie, speaking of trust, what's happened to people's trust of information overall in the context of COVID-19? Jeremy, as Americans begin to take off their masks and resume various activities, trust has become a big issue. There are concerns about information that's being exchanged and whether everyone without a mask has actually been vaccinated. When it comes to truth about COVID-19, 88% of people report having a great or fair amount of trust if it's a family or a friend who is providing the information. 71% of people have great or fair amount of trust if it's a coworker, but only 38% trust individuals outside their close circles and 25% or fewer people trust strangers in restaurants, bars, concerts, sporting events, and airports. Overall, the number of people who are social distancing now is plummeting with just 45% of people wearing a mask at all times when they're outside their homes and 32% keeping a six foot distance from others at all times. These are the lowest percentages in over a year. There is so much trust, Jeremy, that we need to rebuild trust with the government, trust with the scientists, trust with members of our own community. A listener asked us to discuss the latest thinking on the need for booster shots. She was ill with the coronavirus almost a year ago and had the vaccine late last year. Will she need to be vaccinated again this fall? Jeremy, the need for a booster shot is a combination of two factors, and neither of these factors are fully understood at the current time. First, will the immunity created by the vaccine last over time? And second, will the next generation of mutants be susceptible to the antibodies that the current vaccines produce? These questions will determine how much vaccine the U.S. holds onto and how much it can release for use in other nations. Anticipation of the possibility of boosters being needed, the government is currently planning to keep 300 million doses available throughout 2021 to vaccinate the entire population should a third dose prove essential. To date, the debate over booster shots has not been resolved. On one hand, you have the CEOs of the companies that are manufacturing the vaccines saying that it probably will be needed. But of course, it's economically beneficial to them if everyone receives a shot. And you have the, and you have the scientists who are discovering that immunity seems to be lasting for longer and longer time periods. Remember, the maximum that can be stated with certainty is the time since vaccines were first administered, and that remains less than a year, but so far it would appear that immunity is lasting for as long as we are capable of measuring it. That leads to the most important and exciting new research that shows that the cells capable of producing immunity survive in the bone marrow of people who were either infected or immunized against the virus in the past. Theoretically, this could mean that immunity will last for years or even forever. 
scientists are leading towards the possibility that people who were infected and had the two doses of vaccine may not need boosters, but they still believe that boosters may be required in people who were vaccinated, but never infected. We'll get a deeper look at this question this fall when the medical professionals who are the first to be vaccinated in 2020 will hit the one year mark in 2021 and we'll see what the CDC recommends for them at the time. Listeners need to remember that our bodies have multiple ways of fighting infection. One way is circulating antibodies. These are relatively easily measured through blood samples. But there's a second way, and that's through what's called memory B cells that are capable of producing antibodies when our bodies are challenged a second time after prior immunity has been created. And that is what is so exciting about the newly published research. It's possible that these prime cells could stay in our bodies forever and allow us to generate an immune response quickly without needing repeat vaccination for years into the future. We don't know for certain at this point. And of course, if there were a mutant so different from the original that the antibodies produced wouldn't be effective, a booster modified to attack the new variants, of course, would be required. But so far, as we said earlier in today's show, that hasn't been seen. In this particular study, the researchers tested the blood of 77 people every three months after they had COVID-19, and they could quantify the decline in blood antibodies, a decline that would be expected. But they also examined the bone marrow of five of the participants who donated samples seven to eight months after infection. And there they found the memory B cells remaining stable across that time period. Of interest in a similar study, researchers showed that the memory B cells in people who had recovered from COVID-19 and been vaccinated produced neutralizing antibodies to an even broader range of variants as time went by. They hypothesized that the body may keep a small piece of the virus to facilitate this process. But once again, none of that has been proven as of yet. Robbie, what's new on requiring people to be vaccinated and, and how easily can people access it? The area of mandate vaccination is evolving rapidly, although there remains a moderate amount of ambiguity and uncertainty. The EEOC or the US Equal Employment Opportunity Commission said last week that employers have the right to mandate vaccine 19 vaccinations, just as they have the right to do so relative to several other vaccines. But the EOC reiterated that employers have to permit workers to opt out based on medical or religious concerns. For several weeks, we've noted on coronavirus the truth that by now over 100 colleges and universities will be mandating vaccination as a condition for students to return to campus this fall. And we're seeing a growing number of hospitals requiring all employees to be vaccinated. One of the largest hospital systems, RWJ Barnabas in New Jersey, said that all supervisors and individuals of higher rank 
would need to be vaccinated by the end of the month. And then eventually they would require it for all of the 35,000 employees. Some of the University of Pennsylvania will require its 44,000 employees to be vaccinated, as has Houston Methodist for its 26,000 employees. And of course, in response, some of the hospitals have already been hit by legal suits filed by individuals who do not believe this is something that can be or should be mandated. As we said in the last show, mandatory vaccination is a very polarizing issue among healthcare workers with 60% supporting a mandate, but two in three of those opposed saying they would quit before receiving a dose. In response to worker opposition, many hospitals and health systems are taking what I think of as a middle course. They're noting that only emergency authorization has been given by the FDA for the vaccine so far. They're saying they will mandate vaccination once final FDA approval is provided, but that does not appear to be happening in the very near future. You know, when it comes to ease of vaccination, I read an interesting study about Latino workers. We know that the vaccination rate for them, as well as black workers, is lower than for white and Asian workers. But contrary to what some observers have said, this may not reflect vaccine hesitancy, but simply that their jobs don't provide the time off needed to access a site during the day. And there's the issue that some workers may not have the legal status and therefore can't provide the driver's license or other ID required as part of the vaccination paperwork. Overall, about half of unvaccinated Latino workers in the research study said they would take the vaccine if we're available at a local clinic and they could get paid time off to do so. A long overdue success story is what's happening in nursing homes. As you may remember, early in the pandemic, these were the source of a huge number of cases and over 130,000 deaths. Now that 70% of nursing home residents are vaccinated, cases are dropping, both for those individuals who have received the vaccine, but also the non-vaccinated residents in the same facilities, according to an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is somewhat similar to what we've discussed in the past as herd immunity. Of course, with visitors arriving constantly and some staff remaining unvaccinated, the virus won't disappear completely, but the chances of transmission will be dramatically lower. At the same time, the lower infection rate reported among those not vaccinated could also be accounted for by the mandated use of masks and the strict enforcement of social distancing. The good news is fewer people are dying in nursing home settings, and this will be an ongoing source of data as we start to understand the exact role played by social distancing, and the role played by vaccination. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in this pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, the great news continues to be our nation's progress towards immunity and the decreased number of new cases and deaths that are happening. As part of our good news segment, listeners have liked 
the stories that make them smile, at least smile a little bit. And I have three today. The first is from New York State. With the Big Apple never wanting to be outdone by anyone, the state has upped the prizes available both to adults and teenagers for vaccination. Adults 18 and over can get a lottery ticket with prizes up to $5 million. In addition to a variety of incentives for adults who get vaccinated, teenagers from 12 to 17, they'll be entered into a drawing for 10 full scholarships, including room and board. 10 scholarships being given out each week for the next five weeks to any public college or university in the state. It's hard to imagine how between million dollar prizes, backs and scratch cards, and free college tuitions that anyone would choose not to be vaccinated. But we'll have to wait to see the actual results. The second good news story comes from dating sites. Love and vaccination are now being linked. Through a White House initiative aimed at younger individuals, apps and websites, including Tinder, OkCupid, Hinge and Match, will allow users to display a vaccination badge on their profiles. And for anyone who remains hesitant about vaccination, data from OkCupid shows that people who are vaccinated are 14% more likely to find a match. And each individual site offers other benefits, including match, giving vaccinated people a free boost, and Tinder offering the highly desired super like for people who have been vaccinated. Finally, in this good news segment, your next COVID-19 test may come from a dog. Studies have demonstrated that the same types of dogs that are used to find drugs and explosives at airports can be trained to identify people with COVID-19. Both the sensitivity and specificity of the identification seem to be around 90%. And this is similar to the current rapid antigen tests. In a study from France, 335 people who came for COVID-19 testing had a cotton pad placed under their arms, and then the cotton pads were placed into jars. At this point, no one knew which of these individuals were actually infected. The dogs detected 97% of the people who would test positive and correctly identified 91% of the people who would test negative. France is already using 1,000 dogs for this task. Robbie, a listener wrote to us worried about so-called breakthrough infections. What are they and should she be concerned? Jeremy, breakthrough infections are cases of COVID-19 happening in people who've been fully vaccinated. Although they occur, they're relatively rare. According to the CDC, they occur in just 0.01% of fully vaccinated people with a risk of about one in 10,000. The specific numbers are 100 million people have been vaccinated and there've been just 10,000 positive infections. It is strange to me that people are surprised that breakthrough infections occur. Remember the data said that the vaccine was 95% effective. That means that 5% of people could become ill. For listeners who wonder why the breakthrough numbers are so low, given the 95% efficacy rate, the answer is that the true breakthrough rate is probably much higher than the numbers reported, since people with mild, and certainly people with asymptomatic cases, rarely get tested. One unexplained statistic in the data so far 
is that approximately two thirds of the reported breakthrough infections occurred in women. Whether this is a real statistic resulting from genetic or hormonal influences, or whether it's an unrelated result with confounding factors, such as the possibility that women just decide to get tested with milder symptoms than men is unclear. As such, we can't be certain at this point where the true breakthrough infections are actually different or not between women and men. However, this issue of breakthrough infections is having a major impact in sports. In our last episode, we talked about the eight members of the Yankee staff and the one player who tested positive for COVID-19 after being vaccinated. Now the conversation is shifting to the Olympics. Combining the risk of breakthrough infections with only a 5% vaccination rate in Japan is leading health experts to recommend that the upcoming Olympics in Tokyo be canceled due to the threat of it becoming a super spreader event. Given how much money has been invested in the upcoming games and the desire of the athletes to compete, I find it hard to imagine that they won't go on. However, doctors and hospital administrators in Japan are growing increasingly concerned. Jeremy, as an historian and political observer, how would you advise the leaders of Japan to make this vital decision about canceling the Olympics? Robbie, uh, canceling or postponing the Olympics is not unheard of. It was canceled in 1916 and twice in 1940 and 1944. Uh, while we're not facing a world war right now, we are facing something totally different. While some countries like the U.S. are doing great with vaccine distribution, others are not faring so well. Japan still has a relatively low percentage of their population vaccinated, as you know, and they're, like you said, facing a big surge right now. And according to a recent poll, 70% of the Japanese population is opposed to the summer games taking place. Um, right now, they're not planning on allowing international spectators, but domestic spectators are planning on being allowed. They're expecting roughly 80% of the, or the athletes to be vaccinated and will keep them isolated from the spectators in the community. They will also do daily COVID tests. It does seem like they are taking proper precautions for the most part. Many of the athletes and experts, like you said, though, are calling for much tougher precautions, uh, more like rigorous testing and distancing. And here's one of the problems, though, is like many of the major sports and conferences in the U.S., not having the Olympics this year would be a massive financial hit to the IOC. I think if they can guarantee that they will successfully test the athletes and do more or less what the NFL and NBA did, they should be okay, especially if there is no mingling with the public. Jeremy, our final episode of season five of Fixing Healthcare will be aired on Sunday, June 13th. This season, we focused on the role culture plays in healthcare. Recently, there's been a lot of debate about whether offering people a financial incentive as the state of New York did, to be vaccinated is the right approach to vaccine hesitancy. What are your thoughts on this cultural and economic issue? Robbie, I think this is the absolute wrong approach, and I personally find it kind of appalling. Trying to coerce or bribe people to take the vaccine, especially when the messaging is coming from politicians they may already dislike or distrust, only adds to conspiracy theories and makes things way worse, in my opinion. Seeing a politician in a press conference eating burgers and talking about free burgers and fries or a lottery with a cash prize 
is just bad optics, in my opinion, and trivializes what an amazing scientific achievement this vaccine is and how effective it is. It comes across as degrading and disingenuous as well. In my opinion, there are much, much, much better and less cheesy ways to encourage people to get vaccinated. Robbie, I keep hearing people talking about the dangers of vaccination. What's myth and what is reality? Jeremy, if it weren't so dangerous, the various myths would be laughable. In a recent study by Kaiser Family Foundation, unrelated to Kaiser Permanente, researchers found that two thirds of unvaccinated American adults either believed one or more myths or at least were unsure if they were true. Here's a brief rundown. First, more than a third of unvaccinated adults say you can get COVID-19 from the vaccine. As we've pointed out on this show, there's no actual virus in the currently approved vaccines. So the disease is impossible. Second, 30% of people say it can cause infertility. There's no relationship between the mRNA used in the vaccine, which generates the spike protein, and parts of eggs or sperm. At least so far, this is a false belief based on everything we currently know. Third, almost 30% of people believe that the vaccine contains fetal cells. We've discussed in great detail the composition of the vaccine on this show, and no element of the vaccine is derived from any human cell, fetal or otherwise. Fourth, a quarter of people say that the vaccine can change your DNA. The vaccines used don't contain DNA, and there's no current evidence of any impact of the RNA on people's DNA. It's hard to know how much of this false information is lack of education, political orientation, or distorted social media. I worried early in the pandemic that the vaccine wouldn't work effectively or that it would produce negative health consequences that we could document. With well over 100 million people being vaccinated, we'd know if any of these fears were well-founded. There's no doubt the vaccines work, that they save lives, and that the risk from them are minimal and far less than the dangers from becoming infected. The best way for all Americans to protect themselves and the people they love is by rolling up their sleeve and taking the vaccine. At this point in the pandemic, there's so little to lose and so much to be gained. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.